Let's start with a word of prayer, asking the Spirit's guidance as we explore his word this morning. Lord, we do come to you and ask that you would show us uh, the meaning of the text, its, its significance for our lives. Reveal in it our sin, your grace, Christ's righteousness, the gospel. Let us see him this morning and our need for him through this your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Christ died for you. Ponder that statement for a moment. The the first thing that jumps out is this. To die requires mortality. The immortal one, the creator, the uncreated one, put on mortality and became one who was able to die. That Christ could die for you is in and of itself an amazing thing. But Jesus not only died for you and for me, he lived for you. The uncreated one, God himself, over and above the law in every sense, not obligated to it in any way, not only took on a mortal life, but he took on a human life. And because he became a human, he became subject to the law. He became obligated to the law and had to keep it. And keep it he did in perfect, flawless obedience, obeying every detail. Before Jesus died for you, he lived for you. For you. For me. It's not just that the immortal one took on mortality or that the lawgiver became subject to the law, but that he did it for us. Now, how do I know that to be true? Well, some really simple logic reveals it this way. After all, think about what we said. He kept the law perfectly and he died. Death is the consequence of law breaking. In the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. For the wages of sin is death. For sin entered the world, uh, sorry, for by the sin of the one man, death entered the world. But Jesus of Nazareth didn't sin, so why did he die? He was like us in every way except without sin. He died voluntarily so as to pay the death price for those who would receive it. For as many as receive him, he gave the power to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. He lived for you and me. He died for you and me. And why? Why did the immortal take on mortality? Why did the lawgiver make himself subject to the law and become the law follower? Why is it that God the Son became a human being and died? Well, it is for his, out of his love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that any who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He did this to keep us from perishing because he loved us. And this is love, 
Not that we have first loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, to be a propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. It was in our New Testament reading. It's here again. It's a big word, but it means simply this. A propitiation is that which is necessary to make right a broken relationship. That which is necessary to make one who was uh, uh, disposed against you to be favorably disposed toward you. Propitiation allows one to, to be reestablished in good stead with another. In other words, it's what's necessary to make God like us and pleased with us. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, lived the perfect life. He died the undeserved death so that the undeserving could live. But he did this to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he did this not because we had fixed ourselves up. Not because we had made ourselves right. Not because we had made ourselves likable and lovable. Had we accomplished that, we wouldn't need a propitiation. But he did it to be the propitiation, to be the one who would make us right. In other words, uh, uh, God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God did not love us because we got our act together. No, because God loved us, he's getting our act together for us. He's gotten it together in Christ, and he's getting it together in us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. Christ died for you. The immortal one took on immortality and died for you. And his death could be for you because he didn't deserve it. Because he was the perfect law keeper, and yet he still paid the law penalty for sin. And none of this was in response to you or to me or anything we had done. It wasn't because of us or even in hopes that we might respond. It was for us because he loved us, though we were his enemies though we were busy sinning against him. God the Son became human for you and for me. Jesus of Nazareth lived perfectly for you and for me. Christ died for you and for me. Many of you who are familiar with the book of Judges have to be wondering, how does this fit in? Oh, sure, the the judges... The the men and women who are called judges are themselves types of the Christ. But but none of them exemplify or typify this completely as I've described it. None of them capture this fully. So how does this tie in? As you open your Bibles to Judges chapter 8, as you turn to Judges 8, we'll begin in verse 1 in a moment, I'm going to remind you of what we saw in Judges 6 last week. Judges 6 was the account of Gideon's conversion. The account of him going from a Baal worshiper to a Yahweh worshiper. 
An account of him going from a Baal worshiper to a sort of Yahweh worshiper, mixed with some Baalness left in there, some Asherah left in there, until eventually um, becoming one who fully followed Yahweh. It goes from one being a man of great doubts to one who eventually lived by faith and makes it into the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Hebrew, uh, Judges 7, which we have skipped over, is the relatively well-known account of Gideon being asked to lead the army against the oppressive Midianites. The Midianites had occupied Israel and were stealing Israel's harvest and taking Israel's wealth. And Gideon, uh, the Lord calls in chapter 6, we saw this, the Lord calls Gideon to be the one who's going to overthrow Midian. But then in chapter 7, something interesting happens. When Gideon gathers uh, tens of thousands of men around him to form an army to throw off the Midianites, and what we'll find out uh, later, if you do the math as we read through today, you're going to see that the Midianite army numbered somewhere around 135,000. Um, so Gideon's tens of thousands still wasn't enough. But then something interesting happens. God winnows that army down, eventually down to just 300 men. And Gideon takes those 300 men and by the power of God, and by the work of God, and by the miracle of God, uh, 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 defeats the Midianite army. And that's where we're going to pick up in uh, chapter 8. It's really kind of the, 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 the clean-up, the mop-up effort at the end of that battle. The, the battle, the, the army has been largely routed, the Midianite army, but there's still, there's, there's fleeing men that have got to be chased down, the commanding generals have got to be captured, the, the leading kings have got to be arrested, there's still some things to do, and that's where we jump in on Gideon's story here in chapter 8. <clears throat> I'm going to follow along as I read, and I will stop frequently to comment on the sad events of Judges 8. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, that is Gideon, what is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. Basically, the Ephraimites are upset that they got left out of the military action. They wanted to be a part of the defense of Israel and the glory that would go with that. Our son Caleb had that sort of experience. Many of you know that for a time he was at a a forward base in an undisclosed location in Syria while we were actively fighting ISIS in that area. It was a dangerous location. They came under fire several times and Caleb actually witnessed an allied French soldier shot down by a sniper's bullet. And yet that's what he had trained for. That's why he joined the army. He wanted to be a part of the defense of his country and be in that situation. But because of a training accident, a serious training accident, he spent most of that time back in Kuwait rather than at the forward post at Syria. And he was sad about that. It was depressing to him. It was a disappointment to him. That's an illustration of how the Ephraimites feel here. They want they wanted to be part of the military action. We pick up in verse 2. <clears throat> And Gideon said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizer? In short, Ephraim was the tribe of Joshua. In other words, they had played a huge role in the military history of Israel up to this point. They had a lot of military glory associated with this tribe. 
Picking up in verse 3, God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he had said this. Gideon calms them down by reminding them of their own past glory and how it exceeds anything that he's done, how uh, uh, their glory shines brightly in comparison to his very lame uh, efforts. So what do we think of that response? Well, Proverbs 15.1 says that a gentle answer turns away wrath, and certainly Gideon gave a gentle answer and turned away their wrath. He calmed them down, but couldn't he have done so differently? Shouldn't he have done so differently? The point here is not that Gideon didn't do much. It's that Gideon didn't do anything. Flip back to chapter 7. Look at verse 2. Go back over to chapter 7. Look at verse 2. God explains why the army has to be uh, uh, whittled down to just 300. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Why did Gideon go against the Midianites with a mere 300 men? So that even an imbecile could figure out that it was a miracle. That it was an act of God. That it was God who won the victory. It was Yahweh's defeat of Baal. It was the defeat of Yahweh's people, defeat over over Baal's people. It was meant to be clear that Israel had played no role. So at first blush, Gideon sounds rather humble, doesn't he? Oh, shucks, I didn't do much. But that's not the right response. What he should have said at that point is that I did nothing, period. God did it all. And here we have the first hint of of Gideon's impending downfall. Now, let me say right now, I'm not claiming that he's not saved. I'm not saying he was an apostate. I'm not saying that he wasn't a believer. He makes it into the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. The New Testament author uh, judges him to be worthy of mention alongside of all the other great men and women of faith. Yet, nevertheless, here we have in Judges 8 an account of his uh, uh, great sin. And we see it happening. We see the beginning of it. Because he doesn't give God the glory for what had happened. Where do we stand on that issue? Has a neighbor asked you, why are you still hopeful? How can you possibly be hopeful with all that's going on in our country, the civil unrest, the the pandemic, the unemployment, the economic collapse, with everything that's happening, how can you be hopeful? What is your response at that point? Is it a Gideon-esque response? Oh, you know, shucks, I just try to keep an upbeat attitude. Not doing anything that, that great. Or do you say, I am hopeful because of what Jesus did for me. He died for me. He lived for me. He became a human being for me. And he's coming back for me. That's how I can be hopeful in the midst of everything going on in this world. Do we proclaim the glory of Christ in that moment? 
Or do we like Gideon say, oh, shucks, it's not much. I ain't doing anything special. Gideon failed to glorify God. He appears humble, but he does not remember what the Lord has done for him. We pick up in verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, uh, uh, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? Basically, they're saying this. You want us to take your side in this battle. But we don't think you're going to win. We don't think you're going to come out on top. Oh, yeah, you've routed the other army, but all they got to do is stop, turn around, and fight, and you're done. Because there are only 300 of you. And we're going to find out in a moment there's at least 15,000 of them still alive. We're not willing to bet on you. Because when you lose... And it comes to light that we took your side. The victorious Midianites are going to have our tail in a sling. And we ain't going to do it. We continue in verse 7. So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Thorns and briars. It should conjure up for the biblically literate uh, uh, the the curse. The thorns and thistles of Genesis chapter 3. The curse. Verse 8. And from there he went up to Penuel, another city, and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. What is the significance of a tower in the ancient world? Well, it is a place of strength, of protection. You run into it when the enemy attacks. And you are protected from his arrows and his swords and his spears. And you can get elevation above your enemy and now rain down on them things that, that uh, 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 at distances they cannot reach you. From that height, your arrows and spears fly further. And they cannot reach back from their lower position. It's a position of strength. And we're reminded that it is the name of the Lord which is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are saved. Instead of backing Gideon's army and trusting in Yahweh, they trust in their tower. And so Gideon warns them that their earthly security, their earthly treasure will be taken away. Continuing in verse 10, now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor, with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the East, for, they, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. 15,000 remaining, 120,000 fallen, total army was about 135 when it all began. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of uh, Noba and, and Jagbia uh, and, and attacked the army. For the army felt secure, and Zeba and Zalmunna fled. And he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he, the young man, wrote down for him, Gideon, the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. 
a little reconnaissance, a little intelligence gathering. Verse 15, and he, that's Gideon, came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give, you bre- give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. Far more than any physical pain that might have been uh, uh, endured, it's the humiliation. It's their pride. He literally took them out and spanked them. That's humiliating and degrading. And that's what he's done here. Verse 17, and he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. You know, our author says nothing with regard to the righteousness, the rightness, or the wrongness of Gideon's actions. We don't get any moral or ethical comment on whether what he did was right or wrong. And so you might look at it and say, well, this is God's judgment by the hand of his servant upon those who were faithless. But there is another thing we ought to consider. Let's consider Gideon's attitude toward those who had trouble believing in his victory. They saw 300 men pursuing 15,000. Ask yourself, which side would you take? And let's remember this. When Gideon was first called, did he jump up? And say, right, I'll get right on it. He said, no, give me a sign. And the rock burned up the offering. And he said, yeah, but give me a sign. And the fleece was soaking wet and the ground dry. Yeah, but I'd like another sign. And the fleece was dry and the ground wet. Did the men of Succoth or of Penuel, did Did they see the sacrifice consumed by fire out of the rock? Did they see the fleece dry and then wet, or wet and then dry? I don't always keep the order straight on those. They did not. Did they have the, 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 the time to build and grow in faith that Gideon had had? He has forgotten what the Lord has done for him. He has forgotten how God was patient with him, brought him along slowly, step by step, so that he could be a man of faith. When you are praised for your walk with the Lord, when you or I are asked about how did you get to the point with that kind of prayer life or how did you get to a point where your marriage could be like that or how did you do we say well you just got to do that or did we say no the Lord has been phenomenally patient with me I can't even remember all of my sins I can't keep straight all of the times I have failed but because of his grace But because of his love, in his patience, he has walked me to this point. If I have any righteousness, if I have any good works in my life, it is only because God has seen fit to put up with me to the point that I would get here when I did not deserve any of it. 
If you see anything in my life worthy of praise, it is because our God is so patient and so loving and so willing to abide our horrible shortcomings. We pick up... uh, 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 Where do we pick up? Verse 18. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, they so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. Uh, you'll notice the answer doesn't seem to fit the question. And it's because I think it's really because my translation here is maybe a little overly literal in the translation. So the Hebrew does literally say, where are they? But the point seems not to be where is their geographic location, but rather where are they on the social pecking order? Where are they in society? Where were they located on the, the, the totem of, uh, of the A crowd, the B crowd, the left, out, the left outs, the geeks, the nerds? Where do they fit? That's what he's asking. That's now why their answer makes a little more sense. Oh, yeah, they were like you. They were like royalty. They, they reminded us a lot of you. They were powerful, well-placed men of standing and importance. Verse 19 And Gideon said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. What's going on here? Why does Gideon direct his son, his firstborn, to kill these kings? This is a a symbol, a sign that's probably lost on us as a modern contemporary uh, audience. Let me try to put it in context that maybe you'll understand. What does it mean when a prominent senator or a a governor holds a press conference and says something like this? I am both humbled and honored to announce that today a good friend of mine on my behalf, uh, Mr. So-and-so, has uh, taken it upon himself to initiate an exploratory committee on my behalf. It means I'm running for the presidency. That's what this symbol means. My son is going to be king one day. He's going to take my place. He's part and parcel of what I am doing. I have captured these kings. My son is going to kill them. So that it's a team effort. So that you will see in my son the same thing that you see in me. This ability to win your victories on your behalf. Do you recognize in my son that same trait? Basically, he has said this. The success you have seen lies in the genetics before you. That which has been passed along to my son will offer the same thing. Oh, don't get me wrong. Being born into a certain situation does have its advantages. There are certain sins that I'm simply not drawn to because of the way I was raised. But trust me, there are plenty of other sins that are always on my doorstep precisely because of who I am. Again, it does not rest in who I am, but in who Christ is and what he has done for me. And we pick up then 
But the young man uh, did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. He's referred twice as, uh, as a man, not a boy, so he's probably at least 13. But double emphasis on young, so maybe he's just 13. We keep reading 21. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Continuing in verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. In short, become a king, establish a dynasty. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. Yahweh will rule over you. Wow. Such humility. Such spirituality. We're all in awe of Gideon at this point. But let's keep reading. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil, for they, the Midianites, had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man, the 300 in his army, every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. <clears throat> uh, you're curious, 1,700 shekels and, uh, at the price of gold at the close of business on Thursday, um, that would be $1.3 million in today's economy. Um, And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had a rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. So what's going on? Gideon turns down the call to become a king. And what reason did he give? What righteous sounding uh, uh, justification did he have? Oh, the Lord, Yahweh, he will rule over you. But who is the intermediary between the people and their God? Well, it's the priest. And the priest came out of the tribe of Levi. And if you'll recall from chapter 6 from last Sunday, we saw that Gideon is the tribe of Manasseh. He has no place in the priesthood. And yet, what does he do? He makes an ephod, a golden ephod, an ephod more glorious in the eyes of mankind than any of the ephods the priests wore. He presumes to take upon himself the role of the priest. I will become the one who goes to Yahweh and talks to him on your behalf. Oh, right, Yahweh's going to rule over you, but it's going to be through me. Would it have been wrong for Gideon to become king? I don't really think so. Had he been very upfront and just forthright about it? After all, the book of Judges closes. The very last verse in the book of Judges says that the problem was they had no king. And everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. They need godly authority in their lives, as we all do. But Gideon doesn't 
take the kingship in any honest, straightforward way. Rather, he claims to let Yahweh rule, but then rather than listening to the word of Yahweh, the law of Yahweh, Yahweh has said, my priest shall come out of the tribe of Levi, and you shall worship at the tabernacle, which at this time was in Shiloh. But what we see here is Gideon saying, I'm going to be priest. Look at this wonderful ephod I've made. And I'm going to put it in Ophrah, my hometown. And apparently that's where Israel went because it says they hoard after it there in Ophrah. Ophrah. They have a, the appearance of godliness. They have the outward trappings of Christianity. They have the outward markings of Yahwehism. They're not saying they're worshiping Baal or Asherah at this point, but they're not worshiping God in the way that he has called them to do. They're saying, in antithesis to the gospel, that we're going to come to you, God, on our terms, in our way, in the good that we do, in the righteousness that we see fit to offer. And it is a reminder that the gospel comes to us while we were yet sinners. While we were the enemies of God, he was at work reconciling us to him. They don't accept the gospel on the terms that it's given through the one of God's choice but rather they decide that they're going to go to him on their terms. All Israel hoard after it. We looked at Joshua, uh, Judges chapter 2 some weeks back, and we said that Judges 2 kind of needs to be marked in our heads as the visitor center of the book of Judges. It's the place you go to make sense of the rest of the book. And in Judges 2, verse 17, we read these words. Yet they, Israel, did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. We see this idea of Israel whoring is the idea of a a, a spiritual faithlessness, abandoning Yahweh. Despite Gideon's words of the Lord ruling over them, of Yahweh ruling over them. In practice, they were whoring after a God of their own making. They had forgotten the gospel. What does this sound like? What is this a reminder of? What does this actually foreshadow? It's about 100, 150 years later that King Saul is going to do the same thing. He's going to take it upon himself to lead worship. He's going to take it upon himself to play the part of the priest. He's going to take it upon himself to overstep the call that God had placed on his life. And we see Gideon doing the same thing here. In the guise of humility, in the guise of spirituality, Gideon has said, oh no, I'm not going to be king. Well, let Yahweh rule over you. But he takes on the, the role of the head and leader of a new Yahweh cult. He has forgotten his own humble beginnings. He has forgotten what the Lord has done for him. And he thinks he's all that. But wait, there's more. Picking up in verse 29. Jerob Baal, the son of Joash, that's Gideon, 
went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. Many wives, what is that uh, the hallmark of? Is that indicative of Joe the plumber? Does John Q. Public have many wives? Can John Q. Public afford many wives? Many wives was the hallmark, the status symbol of the king. This was a king thing. Verse 31, and his concubine, it's a a slave girl that's used for sex. Um, So apparently the many wives was not enough. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called, Gideon called his name Abimelech. 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 Some of you who've been in the church long enough may be sitting there going, that Melech, I've heard that before. That sounds familiar to me. And it's the Hebrew word for king. Melech is the Hebrew word king. Abi, Abi, I'm, I'm accenting the wrong syllable, means my father. And like a lot of languages, the verbs of being, is, was, are, am, etc., are just omitted and assumed. Abimelech, my father, is king. Oh no, I'm not going to be king. Oh no, don't make me your king. What does he name his son? Abimelech, daddy is king. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Bezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. Having whored after a false Christianity, a false Yahwehism, it took nothing for them to jump right back into Baalism and to do so instantly. You know, when, when Joshua died, we saw the, the opening of Judges that they continued to walk in the way of the Lord until all that generation died out. Joshua had trained those around him to walk in the way of Yahweh so that they kept the people on the right path for at least the next generation. What we have here is an instantaneous reverting back to paganism. But not just any form of paganism. Baal Bereth. Baal Berit. Again, if you've been in the church for any length of time, that may sound familiar to you. Bereth, it is the Hebrew word covenant. Covenant. Baal of the covenant. The place and position of Yahweh in Israel is now given to Baal. Baal Berit. Baal of the covenant. Verse 34. And the people of Israel did not remember Yahweh their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. The chapter opens with Gideon appearing humble. Aw, shucks, I didn't do much. But failing to give glory to God. Failing to remember that it was God who gave them the victory. He did nothing. Gideon did nothing. 
that he's impatient with the cities of Succoth and Penuel, whose faith was weak, forgetting that God was long-suffering and patient with him, letting his faith build, giving him time to grow. Then he captures the enemy kings and symbolically wants his son to kill them to set up a dynastic connection between him and his son. And he makes an ephod and takes upon himself the role of the priest, having no rightful claim to do that. And then he goes on to behave like a king anyway, taking many wives and naming his son Abimelech. My dad is king. When we forget what the Lord has done for us, we will think too much of ourselves. We will become impatient with others who are not where we are in their spiritual walk. And we will end badly, just as Gideon ended badly. It is for this reason that we need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. To be reminded of it constantly, frequently, regularly. To be reminded of what our Savior has done for us. Of the condition in which we stood when he did it. Be reminded that it did not belong to us in any way, shape, or form. He did not come seek us out because we were off to a good start and he decided to help us along. We need to hear, as they needed to hear, over and over and over again, that we are, we were, lost sinners, headed to hell, deservedly so, with nothing good in in ourselves, nothing good about ourselves, but God loved us. And because he loved us, he sent his own son to live for us, to die for us, and to one day come back for us. Let that be what drips off your lips at every opportunity. Let that be what stirs your heart continually. Let it be what gives you hope in the midst of a hopeless situation. Let it be what gets you out of bed in the morning and takes you to a peaceful rest in the evening. Because it's amazing what our God has done for us. And if we remember that, that's it. Just remember it. Just constantly be reminded of it. And we can avoid the failure, the fall of Gideon. Now we heard this morning, we heard in the psalm this morning, we heard over and over again in our music this morning. We will fall, and when we fall, our God is patient to lift us up again. This is not about avoiding any fall at all. It's about how to walk in a way that we minimize those falls. Walking in light of the gospel, in memory of the gospel, in discussion of the gospel, in pointing to the gospel, and in saying, this is what 
the Lord has done for us. And in this we will rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the story of Gideon. We thank you for the real account of his failures, that the, the human heroes of the Bible are no heroes at all. But they are a reminder of you and your heroic effort on our behalf. They are a reminder that you are the one who saves us. You are the one who calls us out of our fallen condition. You are the one who came to earth to live and keep the law on our behalf, to bear its penalty despite your perfect obedience. You are the one, Jesus, in whom we have a perfect eternal hope. And so that we do not go astray, so that we do not become full of ourselves as Gideon did, remind us of that today. Humble us in our sin, but lift us up in the glory and majesty of your gospel. Let us always proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified, raised again, coming back so that we will remember what you have done for us. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.